Our scripture reading for today is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 and 14 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, oh, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Uh, Pray with me. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together this Sunday, this last Sunday of 2023, be pleasing before you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This is now the uh, fourth and last in the series of sermons uh, I've been preaching in the Advent season entitled The Fullness of Christmas. So we've been thinking about the, the fullness of the Incarnation. Three weeks ago, I said that it was in the fullness of time, the fullness of time, that God sent his son into the world to save us, that through Jesus, we are adopted into the family of God, and because of that, God has also sent his spirit into our hearts so that we can cry out, Abba, Father, as the children of God. Two weeks ago, uh, we learned that in Jesus, the fullness of God, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, that all that can be known or said about God was fully present in Jesus, that to know Jesus is to know God. And last week, we saw that Jesus is full of grace and truth, and that from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace, one grace upon another from an inexhaustible supply of grace. And so today, I want to wrap up the series by thinking about one more fullness related to Christ and to the incarnation, and that is the fullness of his humanity, the fullness of his humanity. Before we get to the fullness of his humanity, John begins with, in the beginning was the word. And later he will say that Jesus is this word that was in the beginning with God. Uh, As I mentioned last time, the word, the word, Uh, In Greek is logos. And let me remind you once more that for Greek listeners, uh, logos primarily meant reason, reason. And so in popular Greek philosophy, it was thought that it's the logos that keeps the universe in order, that it's the logos, this this, uh, idea of reason that kept the universe in motion, uh, that it was essentially the mind, if you think of it, as the mind of the divine. And so our English word, uh, logic, comes from this, uh, as the uh, words like biology and theology, uh, and as a suffix, you know, it means the study of something, a reasoned, right, a reasoned study, a logical study 
of a particular topic. In Hebrew thought, however, uh, logos has more this sense of God's self-disclosure and communication. It has this idea of God's wisdom, right? So whether it's through the prophets or through the law given at Mount Sinai, God communicates to us through this word, through this wisdom. And this is how God makes himself known to his people. And so the, the gods, uh, the logos of God, uh, the wisdom of God is what moves from God's eternal, timeless realm and enters into our space-time in concrete flesh-and-blood ways. And so that is how we receive God's word. And along with this sense of wisdom, then, is that the word of God contains incredible power. For God, speech, the word, and action are one and the same. God speaks a word, let there be light, and there is light, right? I mean, no one else can do that. No one can say something, and it simply is. But that's how the power of God and the logos of God are connected. Isaiah 55 says this. So God says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. Whatever God says is, because the word that is spoken and the accomplishment of that word are one and the same. Speech, event, and object are all one with God. This is why we can trust God's word. They never fail. They, they simply cannot fail. Because what is spoken is. It's impossible for God to say something and for it not to happen. So the word of God, or the law of God, was a concept then, that both Greeks and Jews would understand and approve. Like, we agree with this. You're right, yes. The word, the logos, was in the beginning. We all buy into that. Yes. The logos was with God. Yes. The logos is the creative and ordering power of the world and the reasoning logic of the world. And it was through this logos, this wisdom, uh, this reason that the, the universe came into being. Yes, we, we agree with that. The logos is how the divine communicates with us. Yes, that's good too. But then in verse 14, John writes, this word, this eternal word, became flesh. The word became flesh. The biblical scholar Richard Bachman says this, the audible word became visible flesh. The audible word became visible flesh. For both Jews and Greeks, this is a ridiculous claim. The flesh is the opposite of all that people thought about God, the eternal, the immortal, the invisible. It is vulnerable. It is temporary. It is prone to corruption and decay. One modern theologian said that the idea of the eternal becoming flesh falls under the technical theological term cuckoo. It's cuckoo to think that this could happen. How can the eternal word become decaying flesh? It's impossible. And, and John could have actually written here, he could have said the word became a human being. But instead he chose a cruder word, flesh, to emphasize that physicality, that corruptibility of our humanity. The, the eternal became flesh. That's the claim of Christmas before us. We are confronted with what seems impossible 
and ridiculous that the fullness of God which dwelt in Christ is at the same time this, this fullness of God is enfleshed. And I want to be very, very clear that this is real flesh. This is real humanity. Jesus' genuine humanity tells us that he suffered everything that you and I suffer. Jesus did not have some idealized, some, some platonic form of what it is to be a human being with, you know, perfect skin and hair and, and all of that sort of thing. No, he was a human, like a real human being. We know he got angry. We know he got thirsty. We know he cried at a wedding, I mean at a funeral. <laughs> we know he got tired and fell asleep on a boat because he was so tired. In the middle of a storm, he fell asleep. Hebrews 4 tells us that in every respect, he was tempted as we are, though without sin. He did not sin, but he had to learn and to grow and to mature just like every one of us. He was not exempt from everything that assails us as human beings. Jesus had to learn how to walk, and he stumbled. He ran, and he fell. He scraped his knees. He ran to his mother the first time he heard thunder and got scared. He misspelled Hebrew words. He made mistakes in geometry class. He got acne as a teenager. He laughed and argued with his siblings. He made bookshelves with his dad and probably banged his finger a few times with a hammer. The humanity of Jesus is not like a Halloween costume that he put on temporarily pretending to be a human being. He became real flesh. A fourth century theologian, Gregory of Nazianzus, said, that which is not assumed is not redeemed. Unless Jesus became a real human being and a real human being died on the cross, a real human being like us, we cannot be redeemed. He became in the fullness of humanity. Real flesh, not seemingly flesh. So anything that compromises the full divinity of God in Jesus Christ must be rejected and anything that denies or compromises the full humanity of God in Jesus must also be rejected. First John 4 proclaims, by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. That is the confession we have to make, that he has come in the flesh. And in this enfleshment, John says there are two consequences. First, he says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The NRSV says, and the flesh uh, lived among us. He lived among us. This verb to, to live or dwelt, uh, it literally means to pitch a tent. To pitch a tent. To pitch a tent echoes what happened in the wilderness with the tabernacle when Israel was wandering uh, after their years of slavery in Egypt and they were wandering through the uh, wilderness, they pitched a tent, a tabernacle, as a temporary dwelling place for God. It was the center of their camp. It was where the law of Moses was preserved. It was the place where God's revelation was received. It was where the sacrifices were made. It was the place where the people sensed the presence of God, and this is where they worshipped. And so all that could be said about the temporary tabernacle where God was present is now true in Jesus. That in Jesus, God tabernacled. He pitched this tent with us in the person of Jesus Christ. 
Colossians 2, Paul similarly writes, For in Jesus, the whole fullness, right? The whole fullness. I mean, fullness is enough, but he, he adds, The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Dwells bodily. Just as the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus, the fullness that dwells in him is done so in a bodily way. The, ta- the, the t- totality of God is embodied in Jesus. There is no one else, no place else, no how else where the fullness of God can be found other than in Jesus Christ. Secondly, this word became flesh, this flesh dwelt among us, and John writes, we have seen his glory. The glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. The enfleshment of Jesus revealed glory to those who saw him. The glory of God, the glory of God, is the visible manifestation of God. It is the revelation of God's character. It's what you would see if you could see God. The heavens declare the glory of God. When we look up at the stars and and we kind of marvel at God's creation and the beauty, right? That's, That's the glory of God. In the same way, the enfleshment of God in Jesus reveals to us God's glory, that is God's incredible, extraordinary love for humanity that he would do this, the extreme lengths to which God is going to rescue humanity. In the opening verses of John's gospel, in the beginning, you know, it it echoes the beginning, the, the book of Genesis, the first book. But then beginning with 14 now, it begins to echo the book of Exodus. Remember, in in the book of Exodus, Moses wanted to see the glory of God. But Moses could only see the the backside of God, remember? Because he could not see God and live. So what Moses saw of God's glory could be described as kind of the, the afterglow of God's activity and God's action. Moses could only see a passing shadow of God's glory, as it were. But the disciples, John says, we have seen the glory of God directly. We have seen it in Jesus. We've seen it. Not only have we seen it, like he'll say in other lines, like we've touched this glory. We, we have seen it. We have held it. We have really known this in a very concrete, tangible kind of way. Because in Jesus, the glory is revealed fully as from the, son, the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This fullness of glory in Jesus tells us that we cannot behold the glory of God in some disembodied fashion. A relationship is required. The rest of the Gospel of John uh, will reveal this glory, right? That, that, that's what he's going to do in this Gospel. He's going to show us what this glory looks like now as Jesus deals with people and his actions and, uh, and, his, and his teachings and so on. Because John's going to then describe in the Gospel what this glory is. That God's character, who God is, that has been made flesh, will be seen in the way that Jesus lives. In the way that he is compassionate, the way that he is humble, in his acts of service, people are going to see what the glory of God looks like. And they're going to see that the glory of God is not only, or perhaps not even primarily, in the kinds of signs and miracles and spectacular works, but they're going to see that the glory of God is in the humanity of Jesus. That it is in his compassion for a couple who ran out of wine at a wedding. In the fact that he he crossed a number of borders to have a conversation with a Samaritan woman at a well. 
that he's going to feed Judas, who he knows will betray him. People are going to see the glory of God in the way that he is a human being, not simply in the ways that he is God. That's the glory that they're going to experience. And of course, most of all, we will see the glory of God on the cross. Let me close with this. Um, You know, the end of the year, the end of the year uh, is often a time when people look back on the year and review what was significant about the year. And we see this uh, reflected in the best of the year lists, um, such as the Barnes and Noble's Book of the Year. Anybody know? The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store. The Associated Press Athlete of the Year. Simone Biles. And perhaps the, the one that everyone knows is the Time Magazine's The Person of the Year. Yeah, of course you all know that one, yeah. Um, I, I don't know if any of you pay attention to this sort of thing, but things that I always look for is the word of the year. Um, so the Merriam-Webster uh, Dictionary chose this year the word authentic as its word of the year in light of the challenges presented by you know, AI and ChatGPT. Dictionary.com, also, uh, they chose hallucinate as their word of the year, uh, also in light of AI. So it makes sense to me that Collins Dictionary chose AI as the word of the year. Um, but perhaps the one that is most popular of these sort of the word of the year list is the one that uh, is put out by uh, Oxford University Press. And uh, the word of the year that they picked is Riz. Yeah, it's Riz. In case you don't know what that is, <laughs> it's short for charisma. Um, so it's what the young people say, apparently. As in, I got no Riz. Now, I think, I think a, uh, a word can well characterize and even describe the ethos of an entire year. And maybe you have a word uh, for yourself or for your family that would describe how this past year was. Maybe it was a great year. Maybe it was a terrible year, right? So maybe you have a, a word. So I, I want to kind of think about this a little bit with you. Consider how Jesus, the word of God, took on flesh. The word, right? All that can be said about God, all the ways that we could describe God with words, became enfleshed in this person, in Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, none of us can embody or enflesh all that can be said about God, right? None of us can do that. But maybe we can do a little bit of that. What I mean is this. In the first part of uh, John's reading today, this morning, John proclaimed that Jesus was the light of all to all who received him. But beginning with Jesus' enfleshment, he switches to all first-person plural pronouns. He says, he dwelt among us. We have received glory, uh, grace upon grace. We have seen his glory, right? So he, he goes from this sort of this observation, in the beginning was the word, and so on. And then now he goes to a kind of a communal confession. We have experienced this. We have known this word, this, this sort of idea that was kind of just out there, kind of impersonal in a way, abstract. Now it's took on flesh, and we have seen the glory of God. The glory of God in Jesus was experienced in flesh in the community of believers. 
And it was precisely that enfleshment which made the visibility of that glory possible. We experienced it personally. We experienced the word of God together in community. That's what he says. And so we see here the necessary movement from mere observation to confession and experience. The grace and truth of the eternal word becomes grace upon grace, experienced as experienced and proclaimed in the life of a community. Jesus tabernacled among us and in the same way, just as the fullness of God dwelled in Jesus. Do you realize, do you realize that you and I, the church, we are the temple of God. And Paul tells us, don't you know, the spirit of God dwells in you. Right? That's an equivalence. In the way that the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus, Paul tells us, the spirit of God dwells in you, the church. That's our calling. The word of God must become enfleshed in us. So I want to close my sermon a little differently today. I'm not really sure how this is going to go, 